On September 15, 1997, two Stanford students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, registered the domain name Google.com for their small internet search engine, which was at the time hosted by their university. It wasn't until about a year later that Google purchased their own data center space, a 7-foot by 4-foot cage in the Exodus co-location facility in Santa Clara, California. Nowadays, Google owns and operates over a dozen data center facilities around the world, which are estimated to contain well over 1 million servers. You're listening to InfoTrek, Episode 3, Small Shop Design, Part 1. Hey everybody, welcome back to InfoTrek. My name is John Kearns and I'm back with uh, our regulars, Derek and Mike. We have a guest this week. His name is Steven Sidori. Steven, can you introduce yourself? Hey guys, my name is Steven Sidori. I run a small IT shop. Company is called Vertical Computers. We're in Chino, California. And we do everything from managed IT services to hosting VoIP at our data center out in LA. Very cool. Today our topic is small shop design. And it's actually a two-part series. We're going to be doing a few of the pieces today. And we will be doing a few next week as well. But first, let's jump into the news. First piece of news today is Windows 10. Uh, looks like Windows is Windows 10 is going to be including native Ubuntu Bash shell. Mike, what do you think about this? Well, I mean, I think it's a good thing uh, in a respect that Microsoft's trying to gain sort of market share uh, and bring over some people that are diehard Unix fans or that have grown up on Macs, uh, you know, in the more recent years. But I also think there's, you know, some downside to it because it's going to open Windows machines up to a new set of vulnerabilities. And, you know, Microsoft's going to have to patch at the same rate that Ubuntu community is going to have to patch. And I don't know how well that's going to really work out, right? If they're if they're going to include something that they don't control um, in their OS and, like, sort of leave it open, uh, it's going to be challenging for them to kind of keep up on that front, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a security problem. They're going to wrap all the user mode, all, all the user mode code around the, uh, the NT kernel. So they're going to scrap the Linux kernel, which, um, I think they're going to have some major security, security vulnerabilities right off the bat. Steven, what do you think? Uh, I think it's interesting that Microsoft's making this leap. Uh, obviously, it it opens up the like like it was just mentioned to that other side of the community, maybe Windows haters previously, or people who are stuck or staying away from Windows because of the uh, the softwares that they want to run on Linux or what have you. Um, but at the same time, I absolutely agree those those vulnerabilities are going to be opened. Um, I'm not really sure what softwares are going to work on this uh, this Windows implementation. Um, or if it's going to be pretty limited, so it, it'll it all it'll all have to play out, and and we'll we'll have to take it as it comes, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? We have uh, the Bash and, and CMD kind of living on the same box now, finally. So uh, I think I'm kind of on board with everybody else, right? Security is going to be a huge concern in all this. Um, you know, seeing what it opens up, how they're going to patch it, what's going to be supported. I think you know, just kind of having that basic Bash prompt as a start. You know, some scripting and allow things like that will make people's lives easier, especially for like developers that run, you know, dual boot boxes or VMs everywhere. I think that'll really kind of minimize some of their headaches and just simplify, you know, some of their lives day to day. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I think Windows is going after those power users that, uh, that really love Linux, but, you know, maybe grew up on Windows or something like that, trying to, trying to draw the developers back to the Windows 10 platform and getting them off of, you know, 
CentOS or Mint or whatever they're running now, or, or you know, even more so Mac. I think I know a lot of developers who develop native Linux apps uh, really like to go after Mac. Yep, definitely. Next on the docket here is uh, Uber and the Department of Defense, uh, specifically the Pentagon, are offering bug bounties. They're joining sort of a trend in the industry right now. There's a lot of there's a lot of different companies offering bug bounties. I know Facebook was one of them that that started doing this recently. Uh, looks like Uber is going to offer up to 10k for critical vulnerabilities found in the DoD. 150k. Uh, Steven, any opinion on this? I think it's exciting. I wish I would have continued my path down hacking that I started off in high school, um, but got scared away for good reasons, knowing that these opportunities were going to come up. But um, it, it even is intriguing as a business owner to think, man, uh, th- this is something we should probably do eventually. I'd like to think that we're you know, secure enough as it is, but I'd like to see how maybe what vulnerabilities are found in some of these big customers, these big organizations. I'm not sure how much they're going to release and let us know, but um, it's definitely something that I would be interested in doing as a business owner, but obviously at a much, much uh, lower bug bounty rate. Yeah, white white hat hackers uh, seem to have a, a definite market in the future. It seems like they'll definitely be able to sell their services coming up in the future here. Might have been a good uh, career to go into in the past. Mike, Derek, anything? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely an interesting trend, right? You know, because security is such a hot topic for everybody. Um like our, like our counterpart says, no one wants to be the next Target or Home Depot, right? So I think these large governments that, you know, obviously get attacked, you know, thousands of times a day offering like a legit reward will be interesting. But if you kind of read the article and look into it, it's it's going to attract a different type of people, right? Because it's like, oh, you must register, must provide your social security yeah. number, all this kind of stuff. So, what, you know, almost what they need to attract is kind of like the darker net, so to speak, hacker, right? Who's going to use a much different tool set and things like that. So it'll be curious to see how it plays out. And I think it's going to be a, a good trend. And in the long term, obviously better for everybody, right? So Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of red tape involved, it sounded like from the article. And I think that's going to shy away a lot of the talent that's out there as far as uh, the hacker community goes. Uh, yeah, I think with the DOD thing specifically, right, I, I, I think it's going to be tough to get people who are really seasoned hackers who maybe aren't regular white hat hackers today um, that are going to offer up to be put on somebody's radar, right? So, so there's there's definitely a risk for them. Um, and like Derek said, it's, it's really the people that are in sort of the dark web space that are going to expose the vulnerabilities. But generally speaking, um, you know, this sort of bug bounty thing is a great idea. I mean, look at the, you know, the output of the open source community when you bring people together, um, you know, and you get this larger sort of, uh, I guess, surface of exposure uh, from the community it's going to you know get things to light faster and especially you know if there are some people that you know want to make a living or want to make a name for themselves doing this the more of these that are out there it's it's a great thing so you can actually kind of make it a staple of your normal income next up on the news list here oracle cloud we were talking about this a few weeks ago oracle has their public cloud offering that they're really trying to attract customers to right now and it looks like they're introducing an on-prem version of their oracle cloud system where they will install their equipment configured just like their public cloud on your premises and will uh, charge you monthly I, I was trying to find some more information on it and it looks like they introduced a version of this back in 2013 but it it perhaps it was uh, not fully compatible with their current public cloud. Mike, any opinion on this? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, a cool new shift, right? I mean, I, I think we we saw this with Cisco Metapod, right? Um, 
and it's sort of the same model except they don't Cisco doesn't own the equipment it's the customer's equipment but ultimately they're delivering a managed cloud solution on the customer's premise um, and, and I think it's you know there's people that are attracted to that and you know wanting to keep stuff in house now the difference here I think is uh, like you mentioned Oracle's equipment uh, so you don't have sort of the, the full control that you do when you've got things in your building and you can lock them down because they're your assets. But, uh, you know, I think delivering things closer to the user base has always been, you know, it's generally a design practice that all of us are, are after for most of the time. Um, and, and cloud sort of breaks with that. So when we get the, the benefit of the cloud consumption um, and the OpEx spend that Oracle's offering for it, uh, and we get, you know, sort of the, the source being close to uh, to our user base. It, it seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I remember Cisco coming out with a, a solution kind of similar to this. And um, it seems like some of the customers that are very sensitive to putting sensitive data in the cloud, uh, this might be a really attractive solution for them. Steven or Derek, what do you guys think? Yeah, it's interesting, right? You're taking uh, air quotes public cloud now and shifting it back to on-prem cloud, which is really just private cloud, and they're tying it in with their public <laughs> cloud with your private cloud, and you're getting hybrid cloud. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, if you look into it. But yeah, it's going to be a trend, right? Some people don't want to put all their eggs in one basket, meaning public cloud. They want that little bit of control, and this kind of gives you that essentially just a reference architecture, right? You know, it's like. HP servers, Cisco switching, EMC backend, whatever, you know, they kind of call out. But, you know, them managing it, I think, will be the key. So, you know, that'll then take care of, like, you know, patching, security. You know, they own it. Uh, but you're essentially paying for, obviously, power cooling and then can't touch it or migrate it. But it gives you a pretty high level of SLA at that point to, you know, hold them accountable if something goes wrong. So some of the uh, some of the article also mentioned the orchestration, right? So being able to shift the workloads from public to private, I think that'll be a pretty powerful yeah. use case as well. Yeah, that that actually seems like the, you know, the most attractive piece of this is actually, you know, having Oracle automate the backend system to be able to move a workload from their cloud back to yours and things like that. Uh, seems like that might be the most attractive point of this solution here. Exactly. And And then again, some people get the warm and fuzzies of, you know, having their equipment that's running their workload sitting in the room next to them or something like that. But... Uh, all right, that's all we have for news today. Uh, our topic today is small shop design. We're going to be going over a plethora of points on this topic for small shop design. Uh, first one we have here is probably one of the most important features of your small shop is the internet circuit. As far as internet goes, seems like your reliance on public cloud will play a big role in how large of a pipe you need and how highly available you need it to be. Stephen, why don't you go ahead and uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with what you said. For customers that have a lot of on-premise equipment, it might not be necessary to have a really big pipe. But um, customers that rely on the cloud heavily obviously will, especially uh, VoIP services and and, uh, real-time services like that. Another thing to comment on is there's a lot of Internet providers out there. And what we've dealt with a lot is um, just poor SLA, um, bad, bad support, and complete outages with no explanation why or, or how we could prevent it in the future. So it, it's a really good idea to make sure that you understand what you're getting yourself into, especially if you're going to be running critical services on site or, or need to have redundancy, things like that, access to BGP or, or owning IP space options, things like that. Very cool. Derek, anything to say about this? Yeah. Like networking guy? Yeah, it's uh, interesting, right? I mean, we see a lot of companies now – shifting towards using the internet as a primary means of access to a lot of things and 
you know, my whole thought process is, you know, the more bandwidth you give somebody, they're going to find a way to use it, right? So relatively speaking, with general internet, business class being somewhat cheap, you know, it's a pretty good idea to kind of get as much as you can with bang for your buck, right? So whether it's a small or big, you know, companies rely on it. Um, with the shift to the cloud, it's, you know, keeping in mind that, the quality of the service, right? So you want a good provider that has SLAs, um, someone you can call in the middle of the night if there's problems, whether you outsource it or they fully manage it. So it's definitely a critical thing to kind of work, you know, have as part of your design and your overall network. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally speaking, I agree with what Derek said, right? The more bandwidth you give somebody, the, the more ways they're going to find to use it. But uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's sort of this paradigm of do I really need it and am I paying for extra stuff, right? And I, I think when we brought up some of the things earlier, like RTP and voice services and, and things of that nature, it, it really comes down to am I going to run those kind of things over my internet connection or am I going to provision another network, which, you know, arguably is a whole other topic altogether. But, um, you know, if you are doing VPN mesh and that's your only connectivity to your site, you want to make sure you've got some ability to tolerate some ups and downs as people find new ways to use your internet connection at work uh, that they always will, will find. Yeah. Definitely. So that gets us into core networking. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of options out there um, for small businesses. Um, you know, core networking wise, you can go with enterprise switching, which a lot of them do. Uh, or you can go with sort of just like the lower end business class stuff. Uh, you can do chassis or stacks, you know, 10 gig. Is it necessary or not? Derek, what do you think? Uh, 10 gig stack or chassis. All right. Awesome question. This is one of my favorite conversations you're going to do with customers. So, um, it comes down honestly a lot to preference, right? I mean, when you get to a certain amount of users, you know, I'm not sure what we classify a small business, right? But if we say, let's just say one or two closets, you know, something like that, hundred something people, when you go over three or four switches, generally speaking, me personally, I think chassis are great. Some people hate them with a passion. <laughs> um, to me, what it really comes down to is how you want to design your IDF and MDF, right? What do you want the cables to look like? Where are they going to go? Um, what kind of power do you have? Generally speaking, chassis take, you know, bigger power, but they're usually more efficient. Um, they can, you know, stacks, um, like I said, either is going to work. They're going to work essentially the same way. You know, you can argue that a single chassis with like dual soups and dual power supplies is, you know, just as redundant as a, a dual chassis design, right? Um, but again, a lot of people just hate chassis and some hate stacks. So it's really comes down to, I would say, as much preference as it does technology. Stephen, what do you think? Um, yeah, I don't have much to say on stacks or chassis. Um, as far as what about of- what about uh, what about as far as core networking goes? What about uh, terminating all your networks at a firewall or, or flat network design versus, you know, uh, multi VLAN routed, that sort of thing. How often do you run into the need to, to have that kind of network at a customer? Um, a lot of our customers, unfortunately already have, um, their own networks designed. So it, it takes a lot of time for us to, to redesign them and maybe implement a, a more efficient solution, but they terminate, for the most part, at a router, or excuse me, at a firewall. Um, most of our customers have, you know, a slash 29 at, at the largest or just a single static IP address. So they'll have their their Dell Sonic Wall, you know, as their, as their endpoint there. And we do whatever we can with that equipment. We have a couple other customers that we use um, 
some some Cisco 3800s and and things like that as our our core networking equipment, but um, always stacks, no no chassis. Okay, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I, you care? I don't. It doesn't really matter to me, right? I leave that to guys like Derek, and uh, I, I just it. say get managed switches because the the Linksys small business edition or whatever other garbage you think that is going to do really well for you. That's a third of the price of the Cisco stuff. Um, it, it's it's just junk, right? It's it's the same thing that you're running at your house. They just put a small business label on it and told you it should be more expensive. So. I mean, make an investment regardless of what your design looks like. You know, set yourself up to be able to do real things with your network once you get ready to. Yeah, there you go. Spanning tree, LACP, POE, one gig. There you go. That's what you need. <laughs> yep. Basic, basic layer three as well. Sweet. What about wireless, Derek? Uh, you know, do we need 802.11ac? Do we need high-end access points with, you know, 4x4 or typically in a small design? What's necessary? Sure. So wireless is uh, always a tricky one, right? So being kind of dubbed the wireless guy at work, um, this is a good conversation of mine. So, you know, generally speaking, what it comes down to, it's always about the apps, right? So whatever apps you're running on your network, whether your business is all like cloud hosted, you know, let's say you're doing Office 365 and some CRM on the cloud, Salesforce, you know, whatever, you know, and everything's using wireless, you want to take that into account where if you're doing let's say heavy video editing or sending of CAD files or something like that, then yeah, you're going to need more, you know, a higher density wireless conversation. Right. But ultimately, you know, do you need the latest and greatest wave two AC APs? No, because what happens is in order to really run that type of speed, um, you have to do things from a wireless design perspective that you would almost never do in the real world. Right. Cause there's so many other APs out there that cause interference and this and that you have to design around that. So, you know, keeping with that in mind, do you need the latest and greatest? No, you just need a decent AP, you know, wave one AP, you know, three by three by three, for example, is pretty common nowadays, runs on POE, easy to manage, whether that's a cloud hosted or kind of a built in controller, you know, Meraki, Cisco, Aruba, they all make great APs and they all have their little pros and cons. But generally speaking, you know, kind of from what Mike said earlier is just don't go taking like a Linksys you know, mm-hmm. box, stick it in your MDF, close the door next to a microwave and, you know, hope it works because it's, it's not. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you definitely want to do your, your due diligence. Do you need a, a full-blown network design, you know, heat map? Probably not. But do you need someone that could kind of tell you where to place APs and understand the RF? Yeah, it's going to be beneficial to you. Yeah, and if you don't know what a controller is, figure it out, right? Multiple autonomous APs in the same building is not a solution. <laughs> That's a band-aid, right? Worst idea ever. <laughs> Steven, what about you? What do you usually see as far as um, – or, or what do you try and put together as far as wireless design for small shops? Well, I'll answer the first question you almost asked was what do we see? We see a lot of Linksys access points set up you know, in, in wiring closets across a campus or across a, an office building and – and they call us after we, you know, start doing managed IT for them a month after, even though they've had that set up for a year, and say, hey, why does our Wi-Fi always suck? And um, we very quickly sticker shock them, essentially, with what they need to spend on something that's going to work a little better. And in reality, it's not its not even that much money. There's some great solutions out there that are a step up from something like that. Aruba Instant works really well for some of uh, our customers. We have some campuses that have a close to a thousand people connecting at once across just a handful of Aruba. I think it's 225 instance. And uh, 
they they all run on a virtual controller that any one of the access points might be managing at any given time. Has a static IP address. Um, can also be cloud managed as well. And then some of the customers that really don't want to spend um, much more than those Linksys, um, we point them at Ubiquity. And Ubiquity um, has a similar solution. Um, it's kind of interesting. The software runs on um, a computer to initially set up the SSIDs and all that, but it doesn't need to run continually. Somehow the access points communicate, and it's, they're not completely autonomous, but they're not completely um, run through a controller either, but it, it, it's definitely uh, much better than having a bunch of, I guess, consumer access points set up throughout your office. Yeah, very cool. Uh, good tips there. So let's change gears a little bit and get into identity management. When I've worked on small businesses before, I've typically seen like you almost always see Active Directory run as your identity management system. A lot of times on like Windows Small Business Server, which pretty much every admin in the world hates. But uh, there are other solutions out there. I'm actually working. I'm actually working on a project right now where they're using Jump Cloud, uh, which is a they call it a directory as a service, sort of a hosted LDAP solution in the cloud. But the, I think there's quite a few options out there. Stephen, what do you typically see for identity management in a small shop? Lots and lots of small business servers. Um, yeah, unfortunately. I'm sorry. <laughs> and what's, frustra- what's frustrating after we hire a new Derek IT Derek was guy, starting to cry over there when I said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll hire a new help desk, and you know he knows a lot of basic things. And I always get a call like, hey, man, I cannot find any of the users in, in Active Directory. They're, they just don't exist. And then I have to show them the small business folder and then the subfolder on that where all the users are hidden. But, yeah, we do, we do find that a lot. And we, we just redesign the OUs a little bit once we take over. But um, Active Directory through and through, whether it's on a small business server or on you know 2012 R2. What about non-Windows? Um, how much experience have you, any of you guys had in non-Windows identity management? So I've seen um, some Atom directories out there in the past. I've seen you know LDAP servers of probably every variety running on Linux uh, at some point. It's just because. Somebody thought it was better and usually was a Microsoft hater, right? And uh, you get in there and you move it to Active Directory, and that's really that's really the the game, right? Yeah, I think that is still the yeah. best best solution out there. Uh, you know, just I think small business server is an attainable price point that's attractive to a lot of people, but it is you know it comes with a lot of challenges and. You know, just not to get on a rant, but my favorite one is I'm going to run my company's web server on the same server that I'm running my Active Directory host and, you know, all these other things that it can do magically. My fax server, my VPN server, all of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's just there's so many security implications for your business that you don't realize when you start to do that kind of stuff. And I think that that's really something that everybody should be cognizant of, regardless of the product that you're using for identity management. Don't expose it to the outside, right? So, so just because Windows can do something else doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do with that particular box that's running your identity services. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, def- I, I agree with you, Mike. Um, the customer I'm working for right now, uh, they, I, I think they are very much so Windows haters. They don't want Windows anywhere. And it's it's surprisingly difficult to design a full uh, you know, data center solution with no windows involved, there's a lot of stuff uh, that tie, that wants to tie into Active Directory um, as, as an identity management solution. And LDAP is just sort of built in as like, a, well, you can also do this too, but not many people use it. For a small shop, it seems like probably 
just because of co- for compatibility's sake, it seems I don't know if, how much you guys would agree, but Active Directory is usually the best way to go as far as uh, identity management in a small network. Yeah, and if they really hate having Windows boxes on prem, right? Get an Azure account and put it in the cloud. Right? There's native directory services in, in Azure at this point that are reasonably priced, and uh, you can consume it in that same sort of SaaS model. Yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't personally used Azure hosted Active Directory, but uh, um, I've heard from a few customers that uh, that they're happy with it, and um, seems like you could. I mean, you know, Microsoft invented it, so if they're hosting it, it's probably going to be the most legitimate one out there. You just don't have yeah. to deal with the overhead of the, the the VMs and other things, right? Other than that, it's the exact yeah. same product, and you know, it's just about making sure that it's accessible. Again, kind of goes back to the internet conversation that we were having earlier. Yeah, very cool, Mike. And uh, that about wraps it up for part one. Next episode, we'll be going over uh, compute, storage, collaboration, and security. Uh, but for now, Stephen, how can people find you on the internet? You want to plug a blog or Twitter or something like that? Um, you can just go to our website, verticalcomputers.com. Um, you can send us a message on our contact form or sign up for our VoIP services. <laughs> Derek, how about you? Sure. You find me uh, generally over on Packet Pushers or LinkedIn and sometimes Twitter. And Mike? Yeah, you can definitely find me on Twitter more than anywhere else uh, at, uh, at Aussie. And uh, Aussie.net is my blog that I never update. So feel free to go check out really old stuff there. <laughs> and I'm John Kearns. You can find me on Twitter at Packetsar or uh, follow my blog at blog.packetsar.com. And uh, thanks for a good show, guys. See you all later. I don't think he's on yet. Sorry Kicked about that, Mike. Off, no. I know. Oh, I was sorry. trying to send him an IM. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, on at least on the Windows version, end call of this person is right next to send IM. That's awesome. That's brilliant. I know. Design flaw. I know. I'm going to move to Windows right away. No, so actually, <laughs> I was on a Windows uh, 2008 server, not R2, but Windows 2008. And down at the bottom in the in the tray, the little network icon, you right-click it, and like the open network like center button was right next to the disable adapter button, and I was on it over RDP. And, uh, That'll do it. Yeah, man. Stupid design. All right. Did you love locking yourself out of boxes like that? No, it's ridiculous. I had to call somebody and have them like console into it. Um, 